0: all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy Wilson. And today we're going to talk about one of those great history mysteries that's persisted for hundreds of years, Yes, Uh, which I always love those because, you know, once it's, it just remains a mystery for X amount of time, it's just probably always going to be a mystery. And even if it gets solved, I think there will always be detractors, which makes it kind of fun. Well, and I, it's one of those things that I always am a little bit annoyed at the unsolved (laughs) mystery because I want to know the real story. I don't know that we ever can, because there will never probably be an accepted version of the real story right. by every a uh, universally accepted. Yes, there would have to be some kind of new discovery on this one. I think so. Yes, uh, but what we're talking about today is a document called the Voynich Manuscript. Uh, you may or may not have heard of it. Some uh, sort of code breaking fans have have done a lot of study on it. Some historians are really into it. But what it is is a book that no one can read. Yes. Is it is in an, an unknown language. Yes. Uh, most people consider it to be a ciphertext of some sort. Perhaps. Um, it could be that. It could also be nonsense. Uh, there are the outliers that like to say aliens brought it, but there's some scientific evidence that that is not really the case. Um so for some basic background on it, it's actually named after a fairly modern person, uh Wilfred Voynich, who was an antiquarian bookseller that acquired the text in nineteen twelve. Um he was Polish American and he found it in a Jesuit library near Rome and purchased it there. Two hundred and forty pages long? And written in an unknown text. Yeah. It's kind of pretty and loopy to look at. Like it it's is a very curly it's flowing script. It's very pretty. Um and colorful. Yes. It's currently housed at um, Yale, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but they have this great descriptor in their um, page about it where it says it's drawn in ink with vibrant washes in various shades of green, brown, yellow, blue, and red. And it just sounds so sweet and quaint the way they describe yes. it as this. And when you look at it, it's both quaint and weird because it's illustrated throughout. There are 113 unidentified plant species drawn in there. Uh, astronomical and astrological drawings. There are basically drawings of some sort of like the botanical slash scientific variety on almost every page of the thing. Um, some of which is not immediately recognizable as, no, there, that's one of the ways that people have tried to approach it is by identifying some of the plant life that's drawn in it and trying to backwards engineer that way, but that hasn't really panned out. Um, there are also some interesting female nudes in it. Yes. Uh, it's interesting. I looked at some of these pictures, and I couldn't tell. They all have swollen abdomens, but it, I can't tell if it's trying to depict pregnancy or just the more sort of round body type that has been popular throughout history at certain points. Right. It's I... a little bit hard to know for sure. Well, and I love the Yale description of it. <laughs> Miniature female nudes, most with swelled abdomens, immersed or waiting in fluids, and oddly interacting with interconnecting tubes and capsules. Yeah, I think that's part of what has caused people to want to attribute it to alien origin. It is a little bit, it's odd. It's a little bit freaky. It's odd, and just from that description brings up sort of connotations of weird fertility something strangeness yeah people being strung together it's it's a little bit weird uh there are also nine cosmological medallions and they many of those are huge and they're drawn across um folded folio pages and in some cases they may be depicting geographical elements right but it's not again always clear we haven't cracked this and then medicinal herbs and roots, which are considered separate from the, um, the, the plant species. right? Yeah. And there's no byline. No, we don't know who wrote it, no. which is part of the mystery. Uh, so it is currently housed at Yale University in the, uh, I believe it's pronounced Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. And it's listed as MS-408. Yes. There's uh, a pretty cool page at Yale. That, that gives more information about it. And we will link to it from the show notes we have started doing with this podcast. So yeah. would like to have a look at, at more detail about what it looks like and what's in there. Yeah. They did a wonderful job of, uh, breaking down and describing really every element of the book, um, from a, you know, an unbiased, pretty neutral standpoint, just kind of, I once worked in a library as doing acquisitions and cataloging assistance. So I, they're perfect, basically, is what I'm saying. Yes. Their well, cataloging um, is like an ideal version that you would catalog, something that you don't understand. Right. It is It is a very fascinating read. Uh, there is also linked from there uh, a chemical analysis of the book itself and what the pages are made of and what the inks are made of. Yeah, which is what kind of uh, squelches any of those alien origin theories. Because right. they're identified elements from our planet. Yes, and we have also scientifically we being other researchers, not (laughs) us, uh, identified approximately when it was created. There was a 2009 University of Arizona project. Researchers uh, carbon dated it to the early half of the 15th century. So there's a 95% probability that it was uh, written between 1404 and 1438. I mean, that's the basic description of it. So then we're kind of on to, what is this thing? I don't know. And everybody has theories and because it's never proven out, everyone thinks their theory might be the right one. Um, some people think it could be a book of secrets, uh, like it's alchemy or some other secret knowledge, and that it is, in fact, a medieval ciphertext that is intended to hide and uh, prevent others from getting this secret knowledge. Uh, some have even suggested that it's actually a record of inventions and discoveries of Roger Bacon, who was a friar and scholar in the 1200s. Um, but that theory has mostly been discounted. Yeah, that was a very circumstantial thing of there are things in here that he was interested in. So maybe he made this and that's. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of circumstantial evidence around. Around all of it. Every theory about it. The remnant of an ancient language theory doesn't really hold a lot of water. Uh, it's one of those things that when you hear uh, linguist experts and cryptographers talk about, they immediately will say when you first look at it, it looks like something we should be able to read. It looks like a text. It looks like, you know, an alphabet. But the deeper they get into it, the more they realize it they can't. Right, Uh, it becomes sort of more elusive the more they study it, which is kind of fascinating. And that's one of those ideas that's pretty captivating, because languages do go extinct. There are definitely Mm -hmm. written languages that we have not been able to decipher until we have found some other text that has let us decipher it. So uh, I think that's one of those ideas that has an allure to it, but that has not really panned out. Yeah, and one of the... um... One of the things that kind of discounts that theory is that normally in any language, the most common words are normally quite short, like the repeated words, just like in English, it would be, you know, your articles, articles, uh, prepositions, etc. They tend to be compact, short little words. And in this particular document, the most common words tend to be very long and sort of complicated in comparison to the rest, which kind of breaks the rules of language. Right. Which is one of the things that um, people who are fond of the gibberish theory like to cite. Like, this doesn't make sense as a language. It's probably not. And people have been trying to decrypt it since at least the 1600s, we know. Uh Even in World War II, army codebreakers were just sort of taking a crack at it on the side. And they couldn't make heads nor tails of it. They couldn't really, like even get, you know, sort of a toehold in to be like, oh, we think we might. No, we have no idea. Uh, again, that almost seems suspicious to me that nobody in 400 plus years of trying to analyze this document could really get any sort of positive affirmation that they were on the right track. right They all kind of end up throwing up their hands and shaking their heads. And going, I, I don't know. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource, and paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go paperarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com/paperarian. Here's one of my favorites. Is it the hoax theory? It is. Uh, John Dee, in case anybody does not recognize that name, was uh, is kind of most famous as being the astrologer and an advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. And some people attribute it or want to uh, support the theory that it's actually a hoax that he perpetrated. Uh, at the time, I remember hearing a scholar on this particular text say, you know, it was very common for just as it's common now for people in business or people of wealth to purchase great art to show how cultured they are. At this time, it was similarly popular for people to have an illuminated text in their home to show that they were cultured. And so it could have been like a money-making scheme, like let's put together a fake-looking document that looks like a really cool illuminated text, and we'll just sell it to some businessman who wants people to think he's smart. Um, I kind of love that one. Yes, uh, And another uh, suspect implicated in that is Edward Kelly, who was a hanger-on in the court of Elizabeth I and became very close with John Dee. A lot of people dismissed him as a charlatan and a fake, but John Dee, for some reason, really formed an, um, an affinity and a close friendship with him. One of the things that makes people think that maybe this theory is the right one is that there are no scratch-outs or erasures in in the whole entirety of the book. No. Which, even if you're copying, if you're making a copy of something you have already written out, Mm -hmm. like, I will do that sometimes if I am writing a letter to somebody with a pen on paper. I will be copying out something that I've kind of drafted on another page. Even then, at some point, you make a mistake. And you you have to either scratch it out or erase it. And there is none of that at all. So it it does not seem like somebody was actually trying to make an accurate set of words on the paper. Yeah. You would eventually hit something with Where you would have to get rid of it or clarify in some way. Uh, The big proponent of this theory is Gordon Rugg and he's head of the knowledge modeling group at Keele University in Staffordshire, England uh and he's done some interesting almost um sort of computer science approaches to analyzing and recreating similar documents where he lays out letters on a grid and he's created this little um like a card that you can lay on top of the grid and it has three cutouts and so in that grid he's put in you know characters similar to the ones in this document and just by moving that card around and writing out in order whatever characters happen to land in your open spaces, you can create this gibberish that looks really realistic and really like a language. Um, and he kind of believes this supports, again, the the gibberish theory rather than it being um, a cipher that's, you know, well thought out. Yes. Another theory? Mm-hmm. So many theories about this. There are. And we, I mean, we could go on for days and days about all of the theories. So we're kind of hitting the high notes on this one. Yeah. There's there's a prayer book theory about, you know, in some kind of Germanic slash romance Creole. Do you have, do you have ideas? It was Like, what what has led to the idea of the prayer book, do you know? I think it's uh, because it hasn't ever been decrypted. It kind of it holds popularity with people that want to think it is a cipher text and that it's a prayer book of the Cathars that somehow... Managed to survive the Inquisition mm-hmm. when everything else was being burnt. I see. Uh, and because everything else was burnt, there's nothing else to possibly give us the key to decrypt this. Right. So that's, but that's not a very popular one. I just thought it was interesting. Um, and at one point people were even kind of suspicious that Voynich himself had assembled the book, um, to create a faux valuable for his antiquities collection. Uh, but carbon dating because the, the paper is, from the, f- the 1400s, and the inks are all dated further back, he would have to really be scientifically pretty magical to pull that right. off. Right. So. If he had tried to... If that had been a forgery, it would have been a masterful forgery using information he would not have had, really, at the time. Yeah. And what's really interesting is that it's... Um, it has changed hands quite a number of times. The first one that will mention is actually one of those circumstantial things. So it, allegedly uh, owned by John D, who we talked about earlier. Yeah. And it was bought from D. we know by Emperor Rudolf II of Germany so the Holy Roman Emperor for 600 gold ducats which is roughly $30,000 in today's economy. That just makes me annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> thinking that it was potentially the writings of Roger Bacon. And the circumstantial evidence that supports this idea, or that he bought it from D and not from someone else, is that there are accounts that mention D having come into a sum of money that's just a little bit bigger than this. I want to say it's like 615 or 618. And I believe it's John Dee's son that wrote some of those, at least. So it's kind of like, well, we know that it was purchased for this amount around this time, and we know that suddenly this guy had this Amount of money in his pocket at this time, right? That uh, that reminds me of you know, one of the police procedurals. <laughs> and they have the person in the room, and they're like, "Okay, we know this guy bought these documents for for thirty thousand dollars, and you magically have a thirty thousand dollar <laughs> bank deposit." Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's th- that is as as far as we can get in terms of veracity with this one. Yes, uh, and then it appears that uh, Emperor Rudolf gave the manuscript to Jacobus Horsecyde. And I may be mispronouncing any of that. Um, and that exchange is based on an inscription that's visible in the document in the, on folio 1R, but you have to read it with ultraviolet light. So yes. that's ink that has faded off and that's all that's sort of left is the, the chemical shadow. Right. That was one of the things that they found and documented during the chemical analysis that we were talking about a little bit earlier. Uh, one of the things that I read in that analysis that I thought was pretty cool was that an acid wash had been used on the pages, mm-hmm. possibly to bring out the vibrancy of the ink, but that that may have then washed away other writing in the book. Yeah, uh, so it's it's not really that 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 was written. In an ink that required ultraviolet light to see, at the time, it's ink that has faded to the point that that's the only way to see it. Yeah, now. it's been destroyed through time and, and right. treatment through the ages. Not that does not in any way support the secret or alien theories. Right. <laughs> uh, there's there are some gaps in the timeline of where it's been, but we do know that it was given to Athanasius Kircher in 1666 by Johannes Marcus Marcy of Cronland. Uh, and then there's another little kind of we're not sure what happened uh, wh- or where the book was. We do know that during some of these trade-offs, people were trying to get people to decrypt this text. Mm-hmm. So that's why we say for more than 400 years, people have been trying to figure it out. And then it suddenly... It seems sudden to us, because it's the first time we hear about it again. But after a gap. But there were many other things happening. Yes, after a gap of 250 years. Yeah, then uh, Voynich found it in, a, as I said, a Jesuit college near Rome. And then in 1969, it was given to the Benicke Library by an H.P. Krauss, who had purchased it from the estate of Voynich's widow. Uh, it had passed to her, and then her executor uh, ended up selling it to this person. Now we're basically up to today. Yeah. Uh, in December 2011, a Finnish businessman ma- named Vico Letvala I may have mispronounced that, uh, claimed that he was a prophet of God and that he had been given divine insight into the contents of this manuscript. Probably not true. <laughs> well, and people question his methods and they, of course, want some backup on this. And it never happens. He has um, an associate named Ari Katola who is pretty much handling PR for him. Um, and his statement in an interview is that Mr. Latvala said that no, no one normal human can decode it because there is no code or method to read this text. It's a channel language of prophecy. Uh, and that basically God had told him what it meant and that there is no way to decrypt it. There is no cipher for it. You just have to trust him that God told him this. Right. Um, And he says it's a botany journal, basically, which is kind of funny that that's kind of a mundane thing to say after. God told me it's a botany journal. I had a divine revelation of this extremely ordinary thing. Yeah. And there's a a website that's maintained around him, but he really... This is as Tracy mentioned, in December of 2011. And then he really hasn't gotten much press past then. Like, nobody's really paid a whole lot of attention to his claims anymore. So that's where it stands. It's still a mystery. It's still at Yale. Uh, I think to see it, you would have to jump through some hoops. It's uh, part well, of the that's, special that's collection. often the case with special collections. Yeah, It anything. can be really difficult to get actual physical access to the manuscript unless you have a reason to be there. Yeah, but the good news is there are lots of scans and photos of it online. So if you're curious about it, you can really easily find pictures of it. Yes, uh, We will put those in our share notes also. Yeah. So you can go find them. And it's interesting because it's one of those things to me that even if it is a hoax, it's now become really historically significant in that, one, just the idea that it could be a hoax perpetrated by a fairly famous historical figure kind of makes it interesting in and of itself. Um, but also just that so many people have spent so many years trying to decipher it and reveal its meaning—that kind of has a meaning in and of itself for me. Like it says a lot about our desire to just crack unknowable things and sort of our our persistence in doing so. So yeah, we'll see if there's someone who magically cracks it. I will be upfront and say I tend to favor favor the gibberish theories, mm-hmm. uh, but we don't know. So right. as you said, some other piece of evidence could come to light and all of that will change. There would have to be sort of a Rosetta, Ros- Rosetta Stone. For the of, Voynich Manuscript. Yes. To, to really figure out if it says anything. Which would be awfully cool. It would be both cool and sad. <laughs> well, Which is the opposite of what I said at the beginning of unsolved mysteries getting on my nerves. Yeah, that's sort of the thing that I've noticed in doing research on this is that even when there are um, pretty solid, you know, pieces of I don't want to say evidence, but pretty solid supporting um, concepts uh, like the man who has been able to replicate pretty similar gibberish texts. People don't really want to accept it. There are entire message boards and uh online groups surrounding this manuscript because it is so sort of engrossing and engaging for people that love um ciphertext and, and the idea of a mystery. And it it's interesting to watch them debate and some of them will be like, Yeah, I see and his methods are sound and that all makes sense, but I don't believe it the end. Like they just don't want to believe it. Uh which is it's fascinating stuff. Because nobody wants to kinda lose the mystery, I think, at this point. Right. After it's After gone on for so hundreds many hundreds of years, of years. It's kind of like giving up a, a good friend at that point. Glow with your best skin. Be confident in your skin. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I believe you also have listener mail. I surely do. Uh, This comes from our listener, Emily. Emily. And she says, "Uh, I just finished listening to the Okichi episode. Did I miss something? I didn't hear you mention Puccini's opera, Madama Butterfly, as probably the most famous and most enduring fictionalization of the Okichi story. In fact, M. Butterfly by David Huang was a play in 1988 and then adapted into a movie in 1993, though not an extension of the Okichi story, deals with interracial relationships and exoticism. Um, plus, spoiler alert, she says, gender bending twist. I love that play so much. Uh, there is also Madam Butterfly by Malcolm McLaren, a pop music opera hybrid song from the 1984. Uh, for some reason, people all over the world just love this tragic story. There's just something about it that's so adaptable, whether it's the story of the clash of cultures, promising futures and dashed hopes, or the untenable position women find themselves in because of societal mores. These are stories that endure to this day, and maybe that's why creative people all over the world continue to draw from the Okichi Madame Butterfly story. So here's why I didn't mention it. There is a relationship, but it's several times removed. Uh, I mean, I thought about it when preparing for that podcast, but I was like... Uh, So Puccini's opera is actually kind of more inspired by several other pieces that m- were inspired probably by the Okichi story, although we don't have hard evidence, but it does make a lot of sense. Uh, there was one called Madame Chrysanthemum in, that was in 1887 uh, that was French. And then there was a short story version which was called Madame Butterfly, which was written by John Luther Long in 1898. And then that version was adapted by David Belasco into a play in 1900. And that play is what inspired Puccini because that play was not a musical and not an opera. It was just a straight stage production. And Puccini really, uh, my understanding is that he primarily used Long's novella as the primary source. So at that point, we're fairly, we're multiple levels removed from the original story. And that's why I didn't mention it because it's it's a long line of lineage to get there. Yes. It's a, a little bit of a long walk. Well, and it's uh, often there are so many different influences on a particular play that tracing it back to one seems a little reductive yeah well and uh, you know Cho San's story ends up being so much about the daughter in many ways which was not a part of the Okichi story and it is certainly an influencer probably but I don't know that it's you know as I said the, the line of descendancy takes on uh, so many different elements that it's it's a little wandering yeah uh, there is a great um, uh, Cornell professor named Arthur Groose who has written extensively about sort of the, the Orientalism fascination and how that kind of traces all the way to Puccini's opera. So uh, I recommend it. It's good reading. I haven't read all of his work. He's written several books on the matter, but... He's the pro. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you should do so at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at missed in history and on Facebook at facebook.com slash history class stuff. And we also have a Pinterest board with historical fun things. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more about what we've talked about today, you can go to our website and type in the words code breaking and you will, uh, find amongst other things an article called how code breakers work. And you can research that and many other things at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com slash history and sign up now. year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design?